Hey gentlemen, any ladies that might be listening along because your husband or your boyfriend has invited you to listen, uh, would like to welcome you. This is our 10th week in the Champion Series. This is actually going to be the wrap-up. Uh, we start out with an overview of what champions are, why they're essential, some of the key components to, or foundations we'd say, of championship performance. And then we move through a series of eight qualities of champions. These are essential internal qualities that, uh, without which I believe championship performance over the long run isn't possible. And we said those eight qualities are desire, self-awareness, humility, determination, discipline, realism, integrity, which we also use the word wholeness to describe that, and then finally love. Let me repeat them quickly. Desire, self-awareness, humility, determination, discipline, realism, integrity, and love. Now, if you need a more detailed overview of any one of those qualities, there's uh, podcasts on each of them. Go back and listen to the ones for those respective qualities, and you can get up to speed on those. Today, we're going to try to pull all this together. I'm going to be asking a few questions, and obviously, because this is my last chance to talk to you on, on this particular topic anyway, I want to make sure that we have a final invitation, in, in, invitation to, or a call to action maybe. In sales we talk about calls to action meaning that it, it's a waste to make a sales presentation unless you're also going to invite a prospect to buy something or at least make some next step commitment. So my goal here is to ask each of you in your own lives to make some next step commitment. Quite obviously it's not my job to tell you what your next step is. It's not my job to make the ask for a specific thing in your life, but I'd be kind of like remiss in in doing what I do here if I didn't invite you to make some next step. So I thought rather than calling this a review, what I wanted to do was invite us to look at this in a different way. And so my my title, if you will, for today's material is The Death of the Culture of Champions, or what happens when champions are removed? And we've said, and I, I know this sounds like review, but I, I have to cover this specific thing. We've said that champions are those who stand in the gap, essentially. They stand in the gap between what is and something that should be. They stand in the gap and act as the voice or the defender or the umbrella over people who have no defense or have no voice. They fight on behalf of someone else's honor or nobility. In any way that championship performance goes beyond just winning games in competitive athletics, let's say, in any way that it goes beyond that, it is always about other people. Which is why we wrapped up with the final quality being love. That unless I have some commitment to the best interest of other people, and I'm willing to fight for the best interest of other people, no matter who they are, it could be family, it could be friends, it could be some disenfranchised or disadvantaged group, it could be the people in at your workplace that you lead, whatever it is, unless you have some heart and some love for other people, then all of your best performance is for yourself, which creates sort of a self-defeating possibility for you. In other words, you're going to take the best of yourself, which is your life and your time, and you're going to invest that in yourself, which is going to disappear. Your life is going to end here. And so if you invest all of yourself in yourself, when your life is gone, then all of your investment disappears. But if you begin to make the transition and make the turn now and begin to invest in other people, 
then your investment lasts on. And I'm just talking about here and now on planet Earth. I'm not even speaking for the moment about what comes next for all of us, especially those who are believers. But here's the first question I want to ask you. And remember, the big question is, what happens when, when a culture of championship performance dies? What happens if the champions are removed from this life? And so I'd like you to think of some of the things in, in your life, things in my life, that we all take for granted. The everyday things of life that you and I take for granted. And yet, there is an enormous system that is built specifically to address that need. So think about wherever you're sitting right now, are there any lights on? Is, is there heat in that room? Is there, is, is there the opportunity for you to perhaps make some food or do something? Well, if, if any of those is true, then there's probably some electricity somewhere in the building that you're, that you're in right now. I'm assuming you're indoors as opposed to out of doors right now. And if there is electricity, as a matter of fact, if you're, if you're even listening to this, the fact that you're listening to this is only made possible because there is electricity. Well, what happens when we lose electric power? Or the way I asked it to our Saturday morning group is, when was the last time you woke up in the morning and one of the first thoughts or phrases to cross your lips was, thank God for electricity and for all the people who make it possible? Most of us don't wake up and pray that prayer every morning. As a matter of fact, the only time we do notice is when the power goes out, and the power never, ever, ever goes out at an opportune time, and our first thought is, well, certainly somebody else knows this and they'll get it back on quickly. Or I certainly hope they'll get it back on quickly. As a matter of fact, we so take this essential for granted that not only don't we give thanks for it on a regular basis, we just assume that the same people who bring power to us every day with a great deal of reliability also have systems in place for how to address the problem should it become a problem when the power goes down. So ask yourself this question. Why is it that the people who are responsible for bringing us power already have a system in place to restore power? Which, of course, they do. We know that to be true. Well, it's because they are committed, regardless of your thanks or mine. And I know the cynics among us will say, well, yeah, but we pay a heck of a lot for it. I, I understand that. But I think if push were to come to shove, as a matter of fact, if we were to ask the people in Puerto Rico right now, what price would you pay to have electric power again? I'll guarantee you most of them will be willing to pay a whole lot more than they paid before the hurricane hit. I'll guarantee you they'd be willing to pay that and then a lot more to have their power restored. Many of the things that we take for granted that we say, well, I pay for them and therefore I should get them. As a matter of fact, they're priced remarkably low for the level of trust that we place in them and the convenience that we gain from them. And so we know that the people who bring us that electric power, will they do that even in the midst of outages because they have a plan in place for how to address the things that break down and go wrong with the system? All right, and that, that's for a publicly traded company that does what it does, at very least to break even, if not to make a profit. Well, now I want to turn our attention to all of the good things in life that you and I take for granted that are run by volunteer organizations which are led by or, or staffed by people who gain nothing financially from doing what they do. As a matter of fact, it probably costs them something. What would happen if all of your sons and daughters' coaches were removed from sporting events? If 
the people who lead churches, if the people who lead nonprofits and charities, if they were all to disappear, if the people who have committed their lives to bringing affordable medical treatment or or safe drinking water to people in underdeveloped countries, what would happen if all of them were to be pulled away and, and disappear? You see, every day, all around the world, there are people who engage in championship-level performance that is thoroughly beneath the radar of most people. And the only time that most of us notice, take any appreciation for what they do, is when and if something goes sideways and that service or that product or, or that institution ceases to do what it was intended to do, and then at that point we're aghast and think, well, somebody needs to do something. Before our first break, I want to ask you this question for you to meditate on before we come back, and it's this. Why do we always assume that it's somebody else who will handle up that thing that needs to be done? Why do we always assume that all of the gaps that need to be stood in will be stood in by someone else who will bridge the gap between the desired and what exists now or between what's necessary and what would be without their labor. Why do we assume that it's somebody else? Why shouldn't it be us? And why isn't it us? Let's take a break there. We'll come back in a minute. Okay, I hope you've had a little time to think about that, and we're back, and we'll move on to the next point for discussion. There's an additional quality that I did want to speak about in terms of championship performance, and I do thoroughly believe that it's essential, but it's a quality that requires, as its prerequisite, the other qualities to be built into the human being before this quality can come about. And it's, it's the quality of what we'll call endurance or stamina. Either, either word, they, they're relatively synonymous, so you can select either one. Endurance or stamina implies the ability to do something difficult at a at a level of high performance for a long period of time. So as a matter of fact, we can judge someone's endurance or their stamina based on how long they're able to do that. Well, my first question to you, which should, it should be insightful for all of us, is how do we gain an endurance and stamina? Because they don't come to us naturally. And, and here's what we know. The only way that a person gains an endurance or gains in stamina is if they do the thing that is the things that are specific to what they want to gain stamina in and they do them at a level of just under or just at peak performance almost to the point of or even to the point of total exhaustion and then after an appropriate break for rest and and rehydrating and nutrition they do the same thing again uh, sometimes there's several days in interval between the doing of those things. Sometimes it's several hours. But stamina is only gained by pushing yourself almost to or to the very peak of your ability, then resting and returning and doing it again. And intelligently done, it's done in such a way that you're measuring your performance and you're tweaking that system so that you can improve your stamina or your endurance by getting the proper nutrition that produces the best results and the proper rest intervals and just the right amount of peak training in between the intervals 
so that you press yourself in the right way, but don't press yourself to injury. Okay, maybe I spent a little bit too much time at that, but here's the thing. The only gain stamina by doing the thing, things, either the things themselves or intentional training that mimics those things at a level of peak performance. Now, I introduced this because we said that all champions are able to win over a long period of time. And quite obviously by now you realize that we're not just talking about people who compete on a sports field. We're talking about the biggest, most important things in life. Whether it's influencing the culture, whether it's teaching the next generation, or, or driving some change in a third world country, or whatever it is, those big things that will make all the difference to the people that we care about and love, not only in this generation, but in the next. And we're saying that in order for the next generation to be properly set up, for us to do a proper handoff of the baton to them, we're going to have to run our race, as Paul said, with endurance. We're going to have to do the difficult things that fill the gaps in our areas of life that we are committed to because of the people that we love, we're going to have to do them with a degree of endurance that allows the work to, if you will, congeal and take root and to grow and to thrive. Every gardener knows this. You can't just weed your garden once. You can't just plant the seeds, walk away, and come back three months later and there's vegetables there. I mean, you can, but the crop will be significantly diminished over what it would be if the garden were attended to for three or four or five months. It's a long process. And it's the same with anything good that we're going to do. It's a long process. And if I give up part way through, then a great deal of the effort that I poured into the early part of the process is wasted. I'd like to read some words now that will enlighten us a little bit on what happens when champions are removed from our culture or, more to the point in this case, when God asks a few men to step into culture and be champions over a long period of time. Here's some words from the first chapter of Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that slice of scripture, and I have the words right in front of me to read, you're just listening to the words, and you're, you're, you're probably in a fog and bored, and you've just been thinking about where you're driving or what you have to do next. Why? Because the string of words just goes on so long, and it seems to have very little meaning. It seems to suggest that there's this place in time where this guy named Jeremiah had a job to do. He was to speak for God. We, we kind of get that part. And then it introduces all these things that are apparently nothing but small bits of history. But there's small bits of history that were written by the man who had to live them out. And so I want to invite us to look at them as if they actually mattered and were critical to an understanding of this. I've called this next thing the math of stamina. The math of staying power for what Jeremiah was asked to do. 
Because if you read the names of the kings and look at their reigns, which is not written there, you'd have to go over to, there's a, there's a, a brief text in, in the second book of Chronicles, between chapters 34 and 36, if you're curious, where you could turn and you could see the actual reign of each king. And you can add up the, the math there, and, and or the numbers there, and you can then subtract from that the, the year in which Jeremiah was called to begin his ministry, the 13th year, that is, in the reign of Josiah, and you come to the conclusion that it was 40 years that Josiah would be asked to speak to the people of the southern kingdom and basically speak difficult words into their lives. You're not living the way God wants you to live. There's judgment on the way. You need to turn from doing what you're doing because... The favor of God is going to slip through your fingers very quickly. God is frustrated with you. He's disappointed with you. He's judged people for far less than you are now guilty of. And you are heaping judgment onto yourself. If you don't turn, you need to turn. Okay, so pause right there before we move on to the next disappointing point. Pause right there to think about this. What does it feel like to tell somebody that they're doing something, that they're messing up their lives. Even somebody you love, even somebody that you care deeply about. Imagine imagine a, a conversation between close family members or perhaps between a husband and a wife. And, and frankly, maybe you don't have to imagine this conversation because you've had to have this conversation or someone has had to have it with you. And so you either, from firsthand experience, know what it feels like to have the conversation with someone who isn't receptive to what you need to tell them or you've been that person that someone else had to have the conversation with and you weren't receptive to what they had to tell you. Now, just place yourself in that situation. Experience the, motion, the emotion that was there when you were trying to have that conversation or even plan for the conversation because if it's your second or third conversation, you already have some anxiety because you know the conversation is probably not going to go well and yet you feel obliged to have the conversation anyway. All right, what if your task given to you by God was to have that kind of conversation for 40 years and that was your ministry? In other words, that was your job. That was what you did day after day or season after season. It probably wasn't a daily thing, but season after season, that's what you were to do. You weren't to give pleasant high fives to the people. You weren't to say, way to go, king, you're doing fantastic. Way to go, people, you're doing great. Your job was to say, there's some things that I see that are messed up in your life. You need to turn. What would it feel like to do that for 40 years? And what would keep you at it? Because there's something else that we don't see in these initial words of God's command to Jeremiah. God doesn't say is, and in the end, at the end of 40 years, you're going to be successful, right? Some of us, if we're honest, would quit at the end of five years. Some of us would quit at the end of five months. Some of us would quit at the end of 30 days. It would take a rare man indeed with diligence and persistence and without fail to speak the words that God gave him for a 40-year period to an unreceptive audience. But there are many people who might do that if they knew their mission would be successful. But I want us to focus in really quickly on the last couple of words. When the people of Jerusalem went into exile, 
In other words, when Jeremiah started this ministry, it was to speak to the people to wake them up so that they would turn from what they were doing so that God might not have to pass judgment on them. In the end, at the end of 40 years of speaking into their lives, through, through several successive leadership transitions in the political sphere in Judah, Jeremiah has to watch the very people that he cared about and loved be taken hostage, be taken captive, and be transported by force across hundreds of miles on foot to be taken captive and into a foreign territory. Now, what would it feel like at the end of 40 years of doing uncomfortable work to realize that from all apparent standpoints externally, your mission didn't seem to be successful? Where does a man gain that kind of stamina, that kind of endurance? We're going to come back to that, but I'd like you to just meditate on that and perhaps tie it together with something that God may be asking you to do in the life of someone where you need to stand in the gap and you need to be the person who continues to have the conversations. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back again. I want to move on because we only have a limited amount of time in each one of these recordings and we have some other things to cover. So the next question, I, th I think we have set the stage fairly for that. You should be able to feel the weight that Jeremiah is carrying. Given a job to do, a gap to stand in, an unspecified amount of time that he will have to stand in that gap, no assurance that he will succeed, but simply a command from God that God will go with him. Listen to these words from from further on into that first chapter. They shall fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. But let's just be honest. That when I read this text, and I read it thoughtfully, and I read it not with the mindset that many people have, oh, it's the Bible, I can't ask any questions of it, but rather if I place myself in the story, one of the things that I'm inclined to, inclined to ask is, God, if you care so much about these people, why don't you go talk to them? Or why don't you do something miraculous and amazing first, like bring bolts of lightning down from heaven, and show them what's up, and show them who's boss, and then I'll go in to be the cleanup crew. I'll just go in and I'll make the invitation to live a better life, to follow after you after the lightning's fallen from heaven. And, and it should go pretty well and this will all come out pretty well. But what I want us all to understand is this. God is not going to do for us, even in ministry that he cares about, God is not going to do for us the work that he is called to do. And that runs counter to what we sometimes hear. Yes, I have to trust God. Yes, I have to not, as many phrases go, get out in front of God. But there's a powerful reality here that we cannot escape seeing in the life of Jeremiah, and it's true for every one of the prophets. And it's this, that God doesn't step in and do the human part of the work that is involved. He always asks a human to do, and do up to the point almost of exhaustion to the end of his endurance, and that's why we began by discussing stamina. What will it take for us to be able to stand in the gap tirelessly over a period of time without knowing when we can set that load down? And at those times, and here are the next questions, we're moving on to new, to new ground here. What do you trust when you feel exhausted? 
I mean, do you trust your feelings? Do you, do you trust that, wow, I need to quit now? Do you, do you trust in what you know? Do you trust your strength? Do you trust your assets? See, most of us, we're doing physical work, work in the, in the material world. I don't necessarily mean that it's physical work, but it is work in the material world. And most of us feel inclined to use material assets to do material work. It's only logical. It's only sensible. Why wouldn't I use my feelings? Why wouldn't I use my knowledge? Why wouldn't I use my strength? Why wouldn't I use my assets? And I believe that we would use all of them. But as we talked about in the week where we said that all champions are realists and every realist has to decide if he's a one-plane realist or a two-plane realist, does he believe only in the material world or does he believe that there is a material world and a spiritual world? Well, clearly, if Jeremiah responds to this invitation, he believes that there is a God, that that God is asking him to do something and that God is going to make good on his end of the bargain, but he also believes that God is going to expect him, Jeremiah, to make good on his end of what he was asked to do. And so, again, we come back to the question, what do we trust in when we are perpetually placed with our back against the wall at the limits of our endurance and stamina? I have three things that are not on your uh, the notes that you can have access to. Incidentally, let me pause and, and remind you that every week there is a handout that goes with this. It gets emailed out on Monday morning when you or Tuesday morning, whenever that email goes out, and the link to this podcast is sent to you, and there are notes that go along with this. There are three things here that aren't on your notes. If you're the kind that's inclined to take some additional notes, here they are. Here are three things that I want you to trust that are what we'll call physical things to trust in. First off, trust the process of building stamina. Every business person knows this. Every athlete knows this. Every partner in an enduring marriage knows this. Your stamina, your ability to tolerate things increases with your exposure to them. It doesn't mean you become numb to them. You have better coping devices. You have stronger emotions. You have more reasoning tools. You have more assets at your disposal because you are gaining in equipping through being pressed to the edges of your ability. So trust the process. That's the first thing. The second is adjust your set point. This phrase set point is a great one that I picked up from someone else. Essentially, for those of you who are in love with the phrase comfort zone, which I've come to despise because it's so overused, what it says is that each of us has a set point that is our comfortable point, that any time we are pressed outside of that, we experience something that is uncomfortable to us. It could be exhaustion. And our first thing, our first response to exhaustion is to slow down, to stop, to do whatever, until we feel that we're not in, at that taxed place. We have emotional set points, we have physical set points, we have mental set points beyond which we don't know what to do or what to say. Uh, we have financial set points, we have a variety of set points. If you want to be a person who can stand in a gap over a period of time and do it effectively without an unknown stopping point, it will be necessary for you to gradually adjust your set points and become comfortable with being uncomfortable. The third point, and this is 
perhaps a little squishy for some of you, but I think it's essential. Every champion we've said has love as one of his qualities, a love for the people that he's going to be involved with, a care for the people that he's going to serve, whether it's whether it's family or business people or people in the community, some disenfranchised group in the community like we were talking about in our Saturday group, the homeless or, or something like that. Everyone has those people that he is standing in the gap for. Remind yourself regularly of the people that you love. Okay, so that's plain one thinking about how to increase our stamina and how to function more effectively as champions of difficult things. But I'd like to move on to a plain two thing. In other words, if you're not just a materialist, but you're a supernaturalist, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you believe that the gap that you are now filling is an authority that is given to you by God, a responsibility with authority that God has placed in your hands and says, you go do that. And I want you to push that to the limits of that territory and that authority that I've given you. You go do that. Well, if you believe that's true, then we need to have some spiritual resources at our disposal as well. I want to read two verses, and I want you to see how how much they have in common. Both come from the book of John, if you care to look them up later. The first is John 5, 19 and 20, and it says, Very truly I tell you, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. So this is Jesus talking, obviously. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than those, so that you will be amazed. So Jesus says, whatever I do here on earth, and th there was some controversy about something that Jesus was doing. The religious people, the religious leaders, phrase we use a lot, the religious leaders were pushing back on him. I believe in this case it was something to do with the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm not doing this on my own. I am acting in the authority that was given to me by God. I'm not going off outside of my scope of authority, the scope of authority that was given to me by God the Father himself. He showed me what he wants to do. He's given me the authority to do it. The authority has been verified by the fact that I just performed a miracle, so the authority is legitimate. And so I'm not making this stuff up as I go along. Now, from the same text, the book of John, further on, Jesus now talking to his followers at a time when he is giving what is basically his most important and final presentation to them. All the things that anyone would like to tell people who are going to stay behind when you're going to be leaving. And here's what he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burnt. But if you do remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, while it's a little bit longer version of saying it, what Jesus is telling his disciples, the advice that he's giving them, is exactly the same thing that Jesus said he himself lives by. I leaned into my father when I was here. I didn't do anything that he didn't ask me to do, and I did what I did in his authority and with his power. Jesus is now saying to his 
followers, his apostles, who are going to go out and represent him, I want you to do the very same thing that I did. I want you to lean into me the way I leaned into the Father. I want you to draw authority and strength from me in the way that I drew it from the Father. And as a matter of fact, you will be praying directly to the Father, to God himself, and you will be asking him for both authority and power in order to do the job that he has given you to do. So, one more time, we're going to wrap, we're going to review these, we're going to take a break, and then we'll come back and move on to the next talking point. So here it is. From the materialist point of view, the first plane of thinking, trust the process of developing stamina endurance. Adjust your set points so that you become more comfortable with a higher level of discomfort. And number three, love the people that you're there to stand in the gap for. Reaffirm your love for them. And then from the spiritual perspective, lean into God the Father through Jesus in the same way that Jesus did that and leaned into the Father when he was there. So those are our points for developing endurance. We'll be right back. Okay, I hope you've had to, some time to process what we've, what we've looked at so far. We're going to move into the final segment of this. We're going to use a text from the book of Isaiah. And I have to tell you that when you, when you read this, I want you to be looking for the amazing similarity between what you're, we're going to read here and what you can see if you just look out on, on the sea change that is occurring in our own world today, and as a matter of fact, in our own country today. Now, I'm not seeking to be negative. I'm not seeking to, to pass judgment or point fingers at one side or another or this or that. So, so this is in no way a political statement. As a matter of fact, it is not an overtly religious statement. It's not even a profoundly Christian statement. What it is, instead, is a call for us to look at what happens when all the people that we have undervalued and underappreciated, including, and perhaps at times most especially, the work of God himself, when that is undervalued and underappreciated, and as a matter of fact, it's actually discounted. And before we actually start reading, I'd like us to maybe think about in the same way that we sort of undervalue or underappreciate the electric company until their product doesn't come through as promised in, in all its splendor, and, and then we complain because the power doesn't come back on fast enough, in the same way that we tend to underappreciate that, how much more do you suppose it is that we underappreciate God himself? Now, I know this is a podcast that has a Christian foundation to it, so you would sort of expect me to say that. But apart from expecting me to say that, and apart from the fact that, yeah, we are Christian in nature, let's just be honest. If God is real, and if God is a provider and a sustainer, if God has anything whatsoever, I'm not even asking you necessarily to buy into the full biblical story of what God is, I'm assuming that some of you do, of course, but if God is all of that, is it possible that we just grossly undervalue and underappreciate what he does to keep things working every day? And perhaps we all ought to pause this right now and just say, thank you, God, for all the ways in which you keep life functioning that I have really undervalued your contribution. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. All right. I'll let you do that on your own. I want to start with, if you're following along here, 
I want us to turn over to Isaiah, the third chapter, and we're going to start at the end of the second chapter, and here are Isaiah's words, or here are God's words, actually, to Isaiah. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? In other words, he's telling Isaiah this. It's a, it's a weird place to start, I know, so i got to give you the backstory. People have been trusting in a variety of things. They have been trusting in other things to be their sources of strength. It's why in the last segment I asked you, what do you trust when things are down? What do you trust in when things are difficult? Do you trust in your assets? Do you trust in your own knowledge? Do you trust in your own strength? And as we've already said, well, I certainly need to rely on them to a certain degree. Of course I do. I'm a physical being in a physical world with physical resources, and I have to rely on those resources. But do you view them as the ultimate source, or do you view them as secondary sources which are brought about by God? So God says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Now that phrase doesn't make much sense until we jump into chapter 3. And it says right here at the beginning, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. And it goes on and it talks about some other things that are going to be going. Remember, our big question for the morning is, what would happen if champions were removed from society? And what he says next is this. When humans place all of their trust in other humans, they don't realize how fragile the foundations are of what they trust in. So he says, let me just... And we can do this without having to experience this firsthand. Remember the statement he says, don't fear those or don't be overwhelmed by those in whose nostrils is breath. In other words, people who suck air and need air every day. Why? Because... They're dependent on things themselves that they have no ability to provide for themselves. And he says, to prove that, I can take away your food and I can take your water away. Let's see how your source of strength relies or, or copes without food and water. And, and we can all see that, right? We don't, we don't think about that every day and we say, well, that's, that's not likely to happen. Fair enough, it probably won't happen tomorrow. But are we trusting things that are really secure? You see, when we ridicule people of faith, or when we even question whether we should be people of faith, we place incredible amounts of faith in things every day that have a probability for failure. We place incredible amounts of trust in a, in a clean water supply chain, food supply chain, and yet every every month we read of people who get sick, become ill, occasionally people who die because of contaminants in, in either water or food. In other words, the people that we trust are no better than the things that keep them alive, most of which they don't have total control over. Well, that's just the physical side. But then he moves on to say, I will remove the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, and the man of rank. I know I read through that quickly, but what they all have in common is they all provide some leadership function and some stability that makes civil society possible. And he's pointing directly to human leadership. And he's not saying, 
I'm making this happen. He's saying, I'm going to see to it that they're removed. But what he's really pointing to is that I've made it possible for human beings to govern others, to provide structure that avoids chaos, to provide solid foundational leadership that can lead and guide people in the way they ought to go. But I can just as easily allow that to be removed. All right, as you look out across our country, do you see evidence of the fact that leadership is not having the ideal effect that it ought to on the citizens of this country? Uh, and yes, we can look at political leadership. Sometimes we can look at corporate leadership. Sometimes, quite honestly, we can look at church leadership and say they don't seem to be looking out for the people's best interest. But he goes on from there. It says, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, the expert, and I will, and this is after he's removed all of them, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. Now, you don't need to take that in terms of chronological, chronological age to take it seriously. You take people who are intellectually or emotionally immature and place them in leadership positions, things will not go well for the country. You take people who are more interested in their own best interest than the interest of their leader, uh, their, 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 those that they lead, then things will not go well. Now, I want you to look next at the desperation that's being described because there's a gradual progression as God starts to allow things that we take for granted to be removed from our lives systematically, society starts to crumble and decay. And remember, every one of these groups of people stood in gaps that were taken for granted and ignored. And they were so ignored that the people actually were led in bad directions and they never looked up from their daily regular pursuits for long enough to be concerned or looked up long enough to say, we're not going to be led in this direction any longer. All right, let's move on here. And it says, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. Youths will be insolent to the elders, and the despised to the honorable. In other words, Good things will be disrespected. Those who have lived long enough to be respected will be regarded with contempt or, dis, or just disregarded. In other words, the entire society starts to be turned upside down because people have thrown off restraint, people have thrown off respect for good leadership, and in fact, because good leadership has turned bad. And so it progresses downhill steadily. When when bad leaders get into position, as the proverb says, the people groan. Let's pause right now. Before we come back and just very quickly wrap this up, let's pause right now and I want to ask you this. Is there a gap that God has asked you to step into? Is there a gap that you see, a gap that you sense, a gap that maybe you feel a tug to step into? It could be in ministry. It could be something in public service. It could be a volunteer effort on behalf of children or the homeless. 
It, it could be any one of a number of things. You see, when we read this, this section in, here in Isaiah, there were people filling a variety of roles, everything from soldiers to civil government to civil judicial system to those who actually provided food and water and everything that was necessary for people to live. All the things that so often we take for granted and just expect to happen. But they don't happen if good people don't fill in the gaps. And they happen badly if people who should never be allowed to sit in those and fill those gaps are allowed to be in those gaps. And do you know how that happens? It happens when the people who should be there don't own their call, accept their call, and step up and into it. Let's pause there. We'll be back for a final wrap-up. Okay, and we're back one last time. And again, if you're following along with the scriptures that we're using, I'm, I'm back over in the book of Jeremiah now. This is one of Jeremiah's first addresses to the people. Remember, we've already covered the fact that this man has spoken for 40 years into the lives of several generations of political leaders and the people that are being led. Here's one of his first addresses early on. Go and proclaim these words, God says, toward the north, and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord, and I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you've rebelled against the Lord your God, and scattered your favors, which would be your allegiance, your loyalty, your trust, your dependence, your love. These are the things that humans scattered and gave to everyone else. You've scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And here's the, here's the part I want us to focus on. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's his gift to the people. That is God's gift to the people. It's not just himself. It is good human leaders and good stewards. Shepherds are those who care for the people. They're not just political leaders. They're those who care for the intellectual and, and the emotional and the spiritual needs of the people. God says, I'm going to give you good ones of those if you'll return to me and allow me to cooperate with the process. Well, now, for that to happen in exactly the way that Jeremiah had to be willing to accept God's goal, call and step into it, if God is going to give leaders to the people, there have to be, willing, there have to be people willing to step into that call. And guys, for some of us, that's you and I. You and I, as much as you may not right at this moment be ready to receive this, you and I, if we make ourselves available to God, and if we make ourselves willing to be taught and mentored by God and by other smart people, you and I have the ability to be the shepherds and the leaders that God will give to the people. You and I are, to put it bluntly, gifts to the people around us who can lead them and care for them and shepherd them and provide the insights and, and, and the structural systemic leadership necessary to make society function. Do you want to be a partner with God in being a shepherd to God's people and to all people? That's our wrap-up question. I hope it's true for you. 
I know it's true for me. I want to do that. Let's go get it done.